is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. All right. Hello, everyone. This is uh, the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Welcome back. I, of course, am Ashton Cohen. Uh, I'm joined today by Professor Cohen. Al- Sorry, it's Almagor Cohen. You can't put anything before Cohen. <laughs> professor Cohen Almagor, no relation. At least I don't think so. Uh, he is a professor of politics at University of Hull. He wrote a fascinating book called Just Reasonable Multiculturalism, which I think is particularly apt in today's world. So, uh, Professor, thanks for being on with me. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So, I uh, wanted to get to basically the your book and and the reasons you wrote it and sort of the thesis underlying it so give us a give us a uh sort of overview of your book and the theories and your thesis behind it okay so first of all this is the book just visible multiculturalism um and this um volume took more than 10 years of my life to write to think and to ponder and to discuss the issues and to elucidate at least in my mind what I want to say. Um, I've been um, writing articles about multiculturalism and thinking about this for a very long time. So presumably, I think it was 1993, when I started, I was at that time a fellow at the Valley Jerusalem Institute in Jerusalem. And I belonged to something called the European Project that looked at the influence of Europe on the Middle East and the influence of Middle East on Europe. And it was an amazing experience, three years of my life that I uh, invested in that. And this brought me to think about multiculturalism for the first time. And I wrote, I don't know, a dozen articles or maybe 20 articles throughout the years, but uh, I did not think about sitting down and writing a book. What actually prompted me to, uh, to sit down and write the book, to do the research, uh, were statements by David Cameron, who was Prime Minister of Britain at the time. And um, I'm used to the attacks on multiculturalism that stem from feminism, who claim that multiculturalism is bad for women. And I'm used to attacks from liberalism, that, who claim that uh, multiculturalism is bad for democracy because uh, group rights comes at the expense of individual rights. So these are familiar attacks that there are many, many discussions about that. And I didn't think that I have particularly anything new to say. But David Cameron, um, I think outrageously, uh, said that multiculturalism no less contribute to terrorism. And as if it was not bad enough, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy and Angela Merkel um, made speeches around that time and they echoed the same sentiments of David Cameron. And I said, this is really dangerous what, what the, these people are doing because you know these are high-flying, very powerful people. And with the populism that exists in Europe and the United States and with political extremism 
on the rise and terrorism um, and all kinds of racist sentiments and Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. This is really, really bad. So I want to understand how come that the prime minister of a country can say this. Um, and this is, this is how I started my journey. So I'm looking at uh, answering these three questions, whether multiculturalism indeed is bad for democracy, bad for women and promoting terrorism. And um, I decided that I'm going to concentrate only on democracies. So I don't, I don't try to cover the entire world. And I'm trying to investigate these three questions and to see whether multiculturalism and liberalism are reconcilable. And I needed some sort of a theoretical framework. I'm a political scientist, so that's how I work. I work with uh, theory and then apply to case studies. I decided to develop a theory that is going to be comprehensive and will enable me to tackle these questions. And this is when I came out with these ideas that are going to be four components of the theory. The first component is dealing with the issues of justice and liberalism and democracy. And I'm trying to explain what justice is and what democracy is and what liberalism is. And I'm um, borrowing a lot <clears throat> from a, a thinker of our time. I mean, he died in 2002. His name is John Rawls, who wrote a, a very famous book called A Theory of Justice. And I'm a Rawlsian in a sense. So uh, that's one sort of uh, a leg of, of my of the theory. Second leg is about multiculturalism, explaining what multiculturalism is and what are the constraints of multiculturalism. And here I'm borrowing from people like Will Kimika, the Canadian scholar. And um, the third concept is the concept of reasonableness. So what is reasonable? And uh, um, the theory is just and reasonable multiculturalism. And the main thesis is that liberalism, multiculturalism are reconcilable provided that multiculturalism is just and reasonable. And the two other concepts deal with compromise and coercion. Compromise, it's clear. I mean, when you, are, you have different point of view and people want different things that you try to find some sort of a middle way to bridge between them. And I'm a great believer in, in bridges rather than in walls. And, um, I follow Habermas, another scholar, deliberate democracy. So if we are going to speak and we are going to debate and we are going to deliberate and we have general views and so on, we'll be able to find a solution. And then the issue is coercion because there's another component here and that's why I call it liberalism, culture and coercion. We, we seem to think coercion is a bad thing. We shrink from coercion, nobody likes to be coerced. But if you come to think about it for a second, our life is full of coercion. I mean, I don't know many people, I don't know about you, but I testify, I really don't like to pay taxes, especially when they're excessive. But we pay taxes and we accept it uh, as part of our life because we understand that they're important for us to continue society. Um, we go to do jury duty. Israelis go and serve in the army. They may not really particularly like it, but they, they do it. They understand. We send our kids to school. There's a mandatory education for kids. Uh, we obey laws because we understand that there's a need, otherwise there'll be a chaos. So we accept coercion to an extent when it is justified, when it's reasonable, we accept it. And of course, if we are talking about the extent to which the liberal society should intervene 
in affairs, illiberal affairs of illiberal cultures within liberal democracy, and these are the questions that I'm dealing with, then of course it's going to involve coercion. We are going to coerce certain subgroups, certain cultures within liberal democracy that want to implement their own culture and say, hey, that's not acceptable, not here anyway. We are not going to allow this. So the, the tricky question for me is the limit of state interference. Something that, uh, you know, especially Americans, they're really troubled by government power and very suspicious of government. But they would say that sometimes the government should interfere when it comes to minority rights, when it comes to women rights, when it comes to children rights, when it comes to health rights, when it comes to uh, certain rights that we all appreciate. And the question is, when should the state interfere and when should the state let go, let off and, and let them do whatever, whatever they want? So once I develop the theory, this is the first part of the book, then I start the application of the theory. And first I apply it to what I call the easier cases. And the easier cases are cases of physical harm. Why I'm saying it's easier? Because if I punch you and I'm going to hurt your nose and you start bleeding, it's noticeable. It's tangible. We can see that, we can feel it. We understand you're hurt. But sometimes the harm, you can't see it. It's not that tangible. And this is why it's more complicated. So I have two chapters about physical harm and then I have two chapters about non-physical harm. The physical harm have to do with cases like murder for family honor. And for me, it's a complete no-no. You can tell me from now until eternity that you think murder for family honor sometimes justified, I would say never justified. Um, I'm talking about scarring. I'm talking about female circumcision. I'm talking about female genital mutilation. And I'm speaking about male circumcision. So I'm taking a certain case study and trying to uh, apply the theory and decide to what extent the state should intervene when we are talking about physical harm, moderate and of course, more, uh, more severe. And then there are two chapters about non-physical harm in which I'm looking on issues like um, forced marriage, arranged marriages, depriving women of property, depriving women of education and depriving children of education. And again, I'm looking at to what extent these are justifiable, yes or no. And the last two chapters of the book are country case studies. Because remember, I started this journey because of David Cameron, who said that it promotes terrorism. So I looked at uh, the extent that multiculturalism has been restricted because of security concerns, because it might evoke terrorism. So in France, you may have heard there are constant debates about what women dress. The French are obsessed with women dressing. Not so much men dressing, but women dressing really disturbed them. Even in the age of COVID, when we cover our faces with masks and so on, they're still deeply de uh, obsessed with the issue of the burqa and the niqab and the hijab, and they declare war on them. And they said that this is not acceptable and it's a case of public order and security. In the name of public order and security, they want to infringe that right of the women to dress as they wish. And the last chapter has to do with Israel and the issue of the Israeli-Palestinians. Again, because um, the Israeli-Palestinians are 21% of the population, they are a minority, but some Israelis perceive them as 
fifth column as a threat to Israel. And therefore, there's some sort of discrimination against Israeli arms or Israeli Palestinians, whatever they want to call them. So I'm looking at this issue as an, and asking myself to what extent this is justified in the name of protecting security. So that's the book. Okay. Um, you bring up a lot of interesting points uh, that we could tackle into. So with regards to, think about how I want to start this. With regards to the, say, when does, when does multiculturalism, well, actually, let's start here. Ha, do you think multiculturalism has been, particularly from the Islamic world, because that's, where a lot of the issues come from, as you mentioned, including in, in France, that seems to be one of the main um, points of controversy. And it's a, it's a significant political issue as well. And England as well, where you're from, where you live right now. What's successful about multiculturalism, right? So what, what should multiculturalism's aims be from, from the government's perspective if they have problems with, say, assimilating people, how far should they go in terms of that? Well, first of all, you need to appreciate multiculturalism. I think we are going to have a tremendously boring place if all of us, we look exactly the same, if all of us are going to dress exactly the same, if all of us are going to like the same food um, and the same dishes, say, if you can imagine that all of us are going to eat all the time only British food, um, and uh, um, all of us are going to have only certain festivals and no others. And when you go to the market, you will have only several flavors and not this wonderful mosaic of colors, of smells, of uh, um, dresses, of, you know, cosmo Polytonism of you know many many cultures that are intervening in and playing a part. I think that we should, at least in liberal democracy, we should embrace pluralism. We should embrace the the cultures. I would not like to live in a place where everyone looks exactly the same. So um, the starting point is that it is something good. You can you can learn a lot by the others. I think we all of us have barriers and it's very easy for us to connect with people who look like us. And it takes some effort to know the other. And if it looks aligned to you, you start to develop all kinds of fears and suspicions and so on. But once you understand the logic of another culture, then you begin to develop some sort of empathies and you can see that actually people are very much the same. We appreciate more or less the same thing. Can I just yes. add, add something? The, but should we accept the fact that, let's say you're, you're France or England, obviously understanding that the cultures are significantly different, right? So someone coming in from Spain, immigrants yeah. coming in from Spain and then establishing themselves in there is very different than those coming from the Islamic world. For example, I'll just read you a couple stats once you re respond to this. So with... This is Pew Research. Eight in 10 Muslims in Egypt and Pakistan endorse the stoning of people who commit adultery. 70% of Muslims in Jordan and 56% of Nigerian Muslims share the view. 
in in Egypt, Jordan, and Pakistan, 86%, 84%, 76% respectively, uh, view that the death penalty should be enforced against Muslims who, who leave their religion. Um, majorities as well in, in various other, in Saudi Arabia as well. So when you have, obviously these are deep ingrained views. This is a part of, of their culture, passed down many, many generations. They are very connected to their religion. You know, Angela Merkel or David Cameron or their school system may not be able to talk them out of it. So how do you deal with people who have those sorts of views living in your society and still maintain a liberal democracy? At what point do you tolerate too much intolerance? Okay, that's exactly what this book is all about. I'm trying to delineate the limits of interference. That's exactly what it's about. Mm -hmm. And I limit myself to democracy, so I'm not dealing with places that right. are authoritarian. Okay, so the issue, according to your question, what should we do with people who come from that kind of culture, say Saudi or Iranian culture, in which stoning might be acceptable, Sharia laws and so on, and they come to the United States or they come to Britain, what, is, what should we do about this? Well, this is where what I'm, when I spoke about deliberate democracy and persuasion and compromise and speaking out and debating and all these things um, and uh, um, putting all the machinery of the state in education, in explanation, in media, in all the apparatus of the state that we have in order to make them realize that this is not Saudi Arabia and this is not Iran. Mm -hmm. And we are not going to compromise over issues like respect for others and not harming others. You can't harm people because they've done X. That's unacceptable. Uh, so if she went, a woman went out with a man who is not, doesn't belong to her family, immediate family, that does, that's not a cause for stoning in our culture. And if you want to live here, then you have to accept our principles. Um, if you're not going to accept our principles, then you have the wrath of the law because we don't allow this to happen. So once they come to our society, they have to accept the rules of society. Mm -hmm. And I'm all in favor, as I said, for bridges and explanation and talking and education and so on, but there's no one law for one culture and another law for another culture. Mm -hmm. That's totally unacceptable. Right. Where to put the lines? Okay, so this is where the, the debate starts and so on. So I make a distinction, for instance, I, in my opinion, I think scarring is acceptable. I'm if sorry, what's that? Scarring. Scarring? Certain, scarring, to scar your body. Okay. Um, in some African cultures, it's, they could perceive this as a sign of beauty oh, or okay. heroism. And in some cultures, they, they scar quite a bit of the body. If you like, it's, um, it's an earlier method of uh, tattoos. Mm -mm. Okay. Uh, but they do it in, in different tools and uh, it goes deeper uh, to your skin. And I would not interfere in scarring if it doesn't cause death. Mm -hmm. I would like this to be in hygienic tools and so on, but I would not interfere with scarring. Um, I make a distinction between female circumcision and female genital mutilation. 
And, and th this is interesting because in, there used to be, I'm not sure to what extent it is today, but in, in, the, in the Negev, in the south of Israel, there are Bedouins. And for many years, they applied to women um, a small scar on, on the outer labia. Um, and this is not worse, in my opinion, than male circumcision. And this was done for ritual purposes of mm -hmm. the group and the community maintaining the tribe and so on. And I would accept that as I accept male circumcision because I think there's not much difference. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I'm vehemently against right. uh, uh, female right. genital mutilation right. when they, um, you know, just destroy uh, womanhood. They just mm -hmm. destroy the women's body. They deprive her of her sexuality mm -hmm. and she would suffer forever from, right. from the time that it's been productive right. and that's important time she died, she would suffer because every time she urinates, every time she will have sexual uh, first, she's going to suffer. It's very, mm -hmm. very painful. This is totally unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm very much against murder for family owner, as I said before. Right. So delineating these lines are, are problematic. And I hope that I bring a rationale how to delineate this, these lines. And also when it comes to non-physical harm, as I said, depriving education or depriving property from women. Nice. What about, so that, that's from the, the legal perspective. So let, let's, let's get a little bit deeper on some of the thorny cultural issues with, so France, they're very proud of their secular society, right? And it's, it, it began obviously before uh, the heavy amounts of Muslim immigration in their society, right? Uh, they're very, you know, liberty oriented and um, they have a sort of, yeah, I would say sort of civil libertarian culture as well in terms of sexuality and all that. They're, they're more of the, the, you know, almost classic sexual liberation style country in, in a lot of respects. Um, yeah. So, so France, this is, this is, this is their culture and, and they're even have a very distinct separation between church and state, even with regards to Christianity have done for a long time. Now, France says, okay, so they they accepted all these Muslim refugees into their country, and now they have in certain communities women walking around with with full niqabs, like it's like you would see in Saudi Arabia or something of that nature. And their position would be, and I, I think it's reasonable that all right, maybe there's a couple true believers in this. But how many women actually, and, you, and it's always funny when you see the juxtaposition of them next to their male guardian or their husband or whoever who's wearing like a tank top and shorts. How many, how many women will actually have the free will to want to drape themselves in basically a curtain in, you know, even when it's hot outside and wearing a full black, how much of that is cultural oppression is, is, is oppression put in by their male guardians and the culture around them making certain communities look like they're Saudi Arabia and how much is that oh no she actually you know she's she's thought about the issues and she she freely chooses this and France says or you know members of, of French politics and people in certain percentage of people in French society probably the majority uh say hey like if you want to be like that then then 
you know, there's, there's, you know, go back to your home country in a sense, because we don't like this extreme people talk about paternalism. This is, this is paternalism to the extreme. And we don't actually think that this is something that, that the vast majority of time is something free will. This is, this is a, a form of, of cultural oppression and we don't want it in, in public places. Now, obviously in the United States, you couldn't do that because, and you know, we, we have, we have certain constitutional rights surrounding that. Um, and I am an American and I, I do support the constitutional rights uh, with regards to that for sure. I can understand to a certain extent though, the, if I were a Frenchman, if I was raised in that sort of ideology and, and based on their system, why they would be so against that. What, how do you respond to, to that point of view? Well, I, I explain from where this evolved, this kind of notions of separating state and religion and wanting to maintain in the public sphere totally secular. And I, I explained the, the background from the French Revolution uh, going right. forward, and then the colonialism of France, uh, the, the mass uh, Muslim coming was not refugees. They, they came because of the Algiers war and they called the French colonialism of uh, North Africa, mm -hmm. Algerians and Moroccans and Tunisian, uh, but especially Algerians. And this is where they started to come in high numbers um, right. because of French colonialism, not because of refugees. And they open the gates to people from Algeria and they come and uh, nobody knows the exact numbers because as I said, it's, it's, they don't believe that people should divulge their information about uh, their religion. So they don't have any census about what the religion is, but they only estimate. And the estimates uh, vary from 5 million to say 9 million Muslims uh, in France. How many of them actually were in the Burqa? The Burqa is the, um, the full, uh, dress uh, that leaves the, the woman only with a mesh on the eyes that mm -hmm. you can see through a mesh. That's the burqa. That's the most excessive and elaborate form of dressing. The estimates are about 1,500 women in France. It's not a huge number. 1,500 women, it's not a huge number. Mm -hmm. Was there anybody did any kind of survey asking these women why they were wearing the burqa? I'm not aware of it. But it, it, it is worth a try. There are not too many women, so it would be quite um, not going to be very costly sort of enterprise to, to you know, track down these women and ask them to what extent they're going to answer and to what extent they're going to answer candidly. Your speculation is as good as mine. I don't know the answer to that. I do know that we as humans, we have a problem when someone doesn't cover, uh, when someone covers his or her face. We have an issue with that. Because now you look at me through the Zoom and, and you look the way that I express myself, you look at my, not only my hands, but you look my, uh, my face, my eyes, my, the, the, the facial movement, uh, it gives you a sign. Now you are smiling at me, you give me a hint. Um, you can be disinterested or you can be engaged. Um, you can fall asleep or you can be joyful. I'm taking hints from the way that you provide to me expression right. in your face. And we appreciate that. We don't like it when the face is covered. 
In the book, I'm giving an example of someone who enters a bus. And actually the, the, the example was written way before COVID. I didn't have any imagination of COVID right, before right, that. Right. Um, and the example is the following, someone enters a bus and there are three scenarios. He finds himself in a bus that is full of people who cover them, the, the, themselves with um, ecological masks, like what used to be Japan, you know, mm -hmm. before COVID and now, or China, whatever. And uh, he asks, where am I? And he suddenly realized there's a group of tourists that's in London. So a group of tourists coming from the Orient and they, that's, how they, that's how they dress. They put the masks on. Second scenario, he comes into a bus and all of the people there are all putting the helmets on, motorcycle helmets. And he doesn't understand what's going on. And there's only one guy who doesn't wear this helmet on. And they all, I mean, he and, and the guy who doesn't wear the helmets understand what's going on when all those who wear helmets suddenly shout, surprise! And all it was a birthday party for this guy that you infiltrate by mistake. So there's a reason why they all wear rain helmets. And the third one is that they're all wearing the niqab, just uh, uh, the eyes are, are shown, but that's it. And, and the explanation for this is that he entered the bus and it occupied by many Muslim women. Like tourists came from, I don't know, Saudi Arabia, and he entered the bus. And then I'm asking my reader, okay, stop now and think for yourself, is there any difference between the two scenarios? And whether one scenario is more disturbing to you than another? And try to answer this candidly. Because in the three scenarios, you don't see the faces in all of them. Now, are you disturbed by one scenario more than another? If the answer is that you're disturbed for one scenario than another, then you have to ask yourself why. In any event, this is your problem. It is not the women's problem. The women can dress as they wish. And indeed in the most liberal democracies in the world, women do dress as they wish. The hypocrisy of this thing in France is that if you look at the burkini, which is the swimsuit of the of Muslim women, and you compare it to say nuns dress when they go to the beach, or even you, you compare it to diver suits, you don't see much differences between the three. Mm, yeah. But they pick up on the, on, on, the, on the Muslims. And then the question begs why they pick up on the Muslims? What is disturbing them in the Muslims? So is it the dress? or it's something that is more sinister, deeper than, than just the dress. Mm -hmm. I found the preoccupation with the women's dress in France bizarre. I have to tell you that. And I, I, you know, I'm at least equally disturbed by the little black dress in cold winters, if we speak about Eltazards and whatever, or the stilto, um, you know, high heels, I find it far more disturbing and health hazard than the burqa or the niqab. So all these things that, you know, we care about the women. Well, if you really care about the women, why don't you listen to them? Just listen to them. Speak to them. Why, why they're wearing this? And then when you speak to them, you find that actually this dress provides them with security. Because, because of this dress, sometimes they're able to go out of the house because the men trust them that nothing is going to happen.
And because for many of them, it's a sign of piety, of modesty, it provides them with a secure space in which they can walk and they feel protected from the gaze of men. So you have to listen to the argumentation of these women. And then you put it in perspective and ask how reasonable it is to demand them to wear like you and to walk like you and to be like you. I mean, why is that? Why is there such intolerance? So I think that the answer has to come from the researcher. And I hint and say what I think that it is. But of course, there are many answers why the French believe what they believe. Mm-hmm. But there are you know, obvious answers and there are less obvious answers. I think I think we make a couple of good points there. With France, obviously, as, as you mentioned, a a good portion of the immigrants or the immigrant communities who live there were from the colonial era. I'm I'm assuming there must have been, especially in 2015. I'm not sure what percentage went to France, but uh, in 2015, with the whole refugee crisis, a new wave of immigration coming into Europe, uh, I'm I'm assuming some of them went there. I know Germany took in what like a million. Sweden took in a, a significant percentage as well. With with respect to the burkini, I think that's just a yeah. I mean that's a stupid, um, the 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 obsession with that, but and with your with your assessment of of the burqa, so you said only fifteen hundred people. Um, I don't I don't doubt that it would be interesting because I I was in France about. Uh, five five years ago and uh, it's possible they're all they're, a significant portion of people were tourists but i saw a lot of those right i i, I do and i've seen it in various uh, european cities uh much more so than any american city um which which has done a much better job of assimilating everyone including you know muslim americans are very well assimilated much better job i think that america's done relative to europe I guess one of the things I, I have issue with is, and I'm tr- still trying to figure out myself, is let's let's say you are one of these European countries, um, France or Germany or Sweden or one of the Scandinavian countries, and your your ethos as a society, as a culture, is, as we said, not only secular, but egalitarian with respect to men and women um have has exceptional derision for for cultural paternalism particularly on the extreme paternalism side and obviously you know in in the scandinavian countries for example right kids are are indoctrinated and i don't necessarily mean that in a pejorative way but they're indoctrinated from a very early age i think scandinavia probably does this more so than any other european country although the others do as well of of pushing this this egalitarian idea between between the sexes and freedom and toleration and do whatever you want um whether you're a man or woman and their point of view is that we we are so antagonistic towards this idea of of women being pressured to dress this way we don't even if you want to come to this country there are, there are limits in terms of how many people 
that we're going to accept who have this mindset and bring that sort of medieval views on how women should dress. It's not only that, it's not only, it's, it's more than just because they're Muslim, right? It's just, we are, we are so, we are so, that's so antithetical to towards what we stand for as a country that we just don't want to tolerate it. And that's one of the things I, I sort of um, wrestle with because I, I understand that. I mean, imagine if, if you had, uh, you know, certain communities where it's a small, it's a, you know, tens of thousands of people dress like that, particularly women. Um, you could see why they wouldn't want to be amenable to, towards tolerating that. Or is the, what, what is what's it? your response to that? Ashton, what is tolerance? Tolerance is not something that you embrace that because you agree with that. Tolerance is something that you accept that is different, that you don't like it, and still you think it should be tolerated. This is tolerance. That you have the power to care about certain phenomena that you dislike. Uh, that's, a, that's tolerance. It's very easy to tolerate things that look like you. That's not tolerance. Um, that's, uh, that's something that becomes very easy. To tolerate something is always to tolerate something you don't like, so it comes with a price. I don't ask you to like it. I mean, I never, the issue of liking never occurred in my vocabulary. I never said that I like or dislike mm -hmm. the book. I just say it's none of my business. It doesn't harm me, it doesn't do any effect on me. If a woman wants to dress like this, so she, she can dress as, as she likes. Why should I interfere? Why it is my business to tell a woman how, should, how to dress? I can uh, think should interfere if they want to kill this woman because she goes out with a man. Mm -hmm. This is going to disturb me a great deal. Or if they want to mutilate her body, or if they want to infringe her education, I would come and protect her and defend her. Uh, but if she wants to dress as she she wills, I mean, what if it's not her choice? What if what if it's right? So it's it's very hard to it's very hard to pull people and get honest opinions of people who live who live in a culture uh, surrounding them of their of of not only everybody that they interact with on a day to day basis and their family that pressure them to live in this very very extreme religious kind of way right so how how do you that's a, that, that's that's my point how how do you and this goes back to your point in terms of in terms of when, when the when the compromise and when the coerce and you know for example i, I remember reading a a poll by uh, you know channel four that and ch channel for Americans other channel four is I guess kind of like the NBC of of England say it's a major channel um and you know they, they found that two-thirds of British Muslims wouldn't report to the police if they knew someone was working for ISIS right so you have all these sort of thorny issues and 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 a large deal large problem with it what's largely responsible for it is the fact that Europe has failed in assimilation love ways and created these parallel societies. So, and just, just stepping beyond just the, the, the dressing issue, 
usually when someone takes that, first of all, when they wear the, 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 the full burqa, that's not even, you know, that's not even, um, you know, mandated by the Quran, right? So this is, we're talking about very extremely religious people um, because, you know, the, again, the, the Quran doesn't even mandate that you have to wear that. Uh, and, and that's, their reintegration of that is more of a recent phenomenon, right? Of like maybe within a hundred years or so where that's been um, demanded more. There was a, there was a point where, uh, and still in in Muslim countries and communities where you know a headscarf would be sufficient, but some some places go even further than that, right? So what I'm trying to get at is that there are all sorts of um, there are things that come with that mindset as well that that becomes difficult to deal with. It's not only, of course, you want to step in and. And here's where we agree. Um, I mean, I agree with most of what you said, but particularly, of course, we have to agree with every any reasonable person will agree when there's actual harm being done to another person, honor killing, a uh, general mutilation, a um, you know for being forced into something. Um, of course, what about some of these other issues in terms of like the 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 mindset that comes with that, right? The the view on women, the you know belief that homosexuals should be killed, all that kind of stuff. Like how 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 does a society deal with that? Other than do you have what are the public policy solutions to deal with that? And what are the cultural solutions to actually properly assimilate people? Like yeah, of course you know be a Muslim, go to go to go to a mosque, pray five times a day. It's wonderful. You know there there are a lot of wonderful things that come with being a um, religious person who is also, you know, grounded in, in the, what our expectations of what modernity and constitutional rights entail. Of course, it's lovely. Um, but so at what where, point, yeah. So well, what point do we, we, yeah, do we make. So these are the, where the concepts of justice and reasonableness are coming in that mm -hmm. tries to make people understand what is just and what is reasonable. And there's a discourse about this. And of course, my opinion about this might be different from another person's opinion, but I'm trying to be consistent right. in my claims and saying that you know these things um, are, are just and others are not just. And for me, the, the two major yardsticks that underpin everything are respect for others and not harming others. Mm -hmm. So if I think that um, certain actions, certain cultural actions or conduct is disrespectful to someone, to minority, women to children and is harming these people and then we have to work up what is harm and what is tolerable harm and what is not tolerable harm um, then the state will interfere again it's a it's a judgment call that i'm doing here mm -hmm. and it might right. be the case that other people are going to say don't allow male circumcision because mm -hmm. this is harmful and believe you me that i the, the most complicated complicated chapter that i wrote in this book was about male circumcision. That for me was the most complicated chapter. Uh, because as a Jew, um, like the vast majority of Jews, I am circumcised and my children are circumcised. And it comes with um, pang of consciousness. When I had to circumcise my children, it was not an easy decision for me. And it was not an easy thing to witness. Um, 
you know, it's your child, you, you want uh, the welfare of the child, it's very, very important to you. But again, what you did is to strike a balance between the culture that underpin you and underpin a certain group and human rights, or in this case, children's rights. And you want to protect both. You want to have an interplay that you respect culture and at the same time, you're not invoking torture. And what I tried in, in, this, in, this, in the book is to find a middle way that is going to accommodate both multiculturalism and liberalism. Right. And to find the middle way that will allow to the practice to continue, but in a way that is not going to be torturous, to find that kind of a solution, it took me a long, long time uh, and deep into the research. Uh, I now know about male circumcision far more than I wanted to know when I started mm-hmm. to tell you that. Uh, but this was something that that uh, was was a journey for me to try to to establish, and of course the fact that I'm Jewish plays a part here. So we we all byproducts of you know our religion, our culture, the, the the home in which we grew up, our family, our friends, and so on, and and we we try to accommodate this into into these metaphysic ideas that we we play with, and we try to find the solution. Let me let me ask you in a, in a different way, because I, I, I want to get down to what your theories are in terms of solving the problems with multiculturalism, because they are they are significant, they are immense in, in some of these European countries, many of them. So yeah. where where has places like uh, I know you study France in particular, but you, you're in England. Where have they failed? Why have they failed in properly assimilating? Islamic communities, obviously there are many Muslims who are assimilated, but there are many who aren't, right? There are many who who don't actually see themselves as a part of the wider culture, who don't actually um, abide by internally, whether they do it, whether they actually break the law or not, but who don't actually see legitimacy in the rules of their society, the, 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 the secular nature of their society, the constitutional rights they all, have, you know, in England they don't have a uh, written constitution, but the legislative rights of these countries—they don't—they—they they, they don't see themselves as a part of that wider culture and and as a part of that creed, and as a, and they don't particularly view it with with any reverence. Like, why why has that failed? Why have they failed to assimilate? many, many people into their wider culture and what can be done about that? Invest, invest in resources, invest in education, invest in meeting points. It's all boils down, down to resources at the end of the day. Why uh, black people in the United States feel alienated from the system? Why they are not fully integrated into American society? Um, in any place where you see that uh, there are minorities that are disenfranchised, that are not equal. You have to ask what efforts have been made by the establishment to accommodate them and how much was invested in education and what meeting points were existing to come together between the majority and the minority and what was done in order to make the minority majority, if at all. Uh, all these things, it's all boils down to, to resources. You invest you get your earnings. You don't invest, you are going to continue with the poverty 
you are going to continue with discrimination, you're going to continue with racism, you're going to uh, continue with divisions in society, and you are not going to get in, in, into integration. So are uh, you so, so yeah. that that's what you need to do. And that's the same story all over again, each and every country when you see a minority that um, um, is not on the same level as the majority. Okay, but do you see so with regards to African Americans in the United States, I would say that's completely different because African Americans still believe on the vast, vast majority, even if they have issues with with uh, certain aspects of of how things work, the judicial system or whatever. Um, the vast, vast majority still believe in the basic principles. If you were to pull them principle by principle, freedom of speech, uh, you know, how we run an election, you know, search and seizure laws, freedom of religion, th those sorts of things. Basic foundational structural issues, there's, there's a considerable amount of agreement across the races. There, there's just no doubt in that, you know, African-American participation elections, for example, are the highest they've ever been. Um, so, but that's, it's not the case with respect to a lot of the immigrant communities in, in Europe, particularly Which the one? Islamic ones. Which one? Right. No, for example, for, so for example, like what I quoted in terms of the, the Muslims in England, for example, right. Where, where, where two thirds wouldn't alert the police if someone they knew was an ISIS. Like that's that's a significant that's a significant point. I, I, I don't I I would question the resource the source that you you are just quoting now. The channel really four, question. yeah. Channel four quote. The channel four did a poll on it, but it's not it's not just them. I mean, it, there there are several. I find it I find it hard to believe. Listen, if it was that dramatic as you say, two thirds are going uh, to support ISIS or discreetly support. ISIS. Not yeah, not not support ISIS, but wouldn't wouldn't tell the police if someone that they knew but was engaged don't in tell the police because they're afraid to tell the police well they're that's my point so that's afraid of, of right right that's, that's my point is 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 in regards to whether it's you know if you have questions about poll and, and that, you know that, that's fine but there, there's no question we're talking about double digit percentages you know make it could maybe be 10 percent, but it's it's probably more than that who don't agree with the foundational basic rights who don't believe with with the central ethos of what their country stands for right and and there's been polls on i don't have the the polls with me on this one but I, i've seen it before where you know you have you have a sizable per percentage of the population don't even consider themselves british right who don't identify with that right so i don't know again i don't know whether you're taking resources uh and what do, why do you think that your your ideas are credible because i would dispute all of them I think the majority of Muslims in each and every country, European country, are loyal by the citizens. There's a small minority. Well, no, we're not talking about actual external acts where they're committing a crime. We're talking about their actual belief system and, and what they sympathize with and what they believe. And they've there, done many there, polls on this. We can we can I, I pull hear, them all day long. I hear, I hear many Muslims in Britain that who support exactly what I support. Yeah, but many citizens. many isn't isn't okay. So like, what we're we talking about. 90%, 80%, even even if it's even if it's say 70 or 80%, it's still 20%. It's a lot of people, right? I, I so, did not do, I did not do any research about this. I can't mm, answer that. Okay. I simply do not know. It's not it's not part of what I didn't study political extremism 
in Muslim society in Britain. That was not the core of the issue. Mm. The core of the issues, as explained, was the, to answer the question whether liberalism is reconcilable to multiculturalism. And to that I answer it is, it is reconcilable. That was the main issue that troubled me yeah. and whether multiculturalism is bad for democracy, bad for women and promote terrorism. These are the questions that I try to answer. So that was not the core of the question that I asked you, that you asked me now. So my simple answer, I don't know, but I would dispute any kind of figure that is going to portray the Muslims as something else that is not part of the British society, the defense society, the Dutch society or the Swedish society. I would dispute this. Because if that was the case, Europe was in a severe problem and we'll have acts of terrorism every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Luckily for us, that's not the case. And the vast majority of the cases, the Muslims are going to say we are against any form of terrorism. The vast, I would say the majority for sure. I, I do agree with that. The, the, majority, the vast majority. But... Luckily for us, it's only a small yeah. percentage of people that, who support, actively support ISIS. I don't know what they, what they speak at home. I have no idea. But you also don't know what they speak at home. Well, I mean, you, you can, they do have polls on this and you can extrapolate based on their views on whether they think homosexuals well, can be executed, know, for example, right? Poll, when it comes to polls, polls is one of my speciality. So when polls, I would like to know who did the poll, for what purposes, how it was conducted, how they assembled the data, how they analyzed the data. Mm. All these issues are very crucial for me because polls can be done in all kinds of ways. You can do a credible poll and you can do a crappy poll. And unfortunately, there are too many crappy polls that are based on certain agendas. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a party of that. I don't have an agenda. I don't want to. Yeah, have an I appreciate I, that. I'm guided by the truth. I'll find the truth. I'll try to, to accommodate myself. And believe me, during this journey, as I said, I had to change my views on several issues. It's not mm -hmm. a, it was not simple. Mm -hmm. It's not that I said, I'm going to decide this before I start the journey. I, I was very much against female circumcision when I started this journey. For instance, I was very much against female circumcision. I was, I, I didn't know what my views about the Amish and, and the infringement of education when I started the journey. I didn't know that male circumcision is such a complicated issue when I started this journey. And once upon a time, I wrote an article in which I said that the Supreme Court of the United States, when he approved the Indian uh, infringement of women was just, and now I think it was not just, but I changed my mind about this issue as well. So, you know, people do change their minds and people have to be confronted with data. But the data you have to research very, very credibly and very thoroughly before you make up your mind. Okay, I just just want a quick quick thing on that because I, I wanted to get to the core of, of the assimilation issue, which is what, what you talked about. Because, so, for example, if you dispute the polls, have you seen any polls anywhere? We could stick with homosexuality because that's usually one of the, the markers of being tolerant in general, right? So. Have you seen any polls anywhere, let's say, of, of, of England or France, where the majority of, of Muslims don't believe that homosexuality should be a jail defense? Because I, the vast majority I, of polls show that they do. I it, Again, it's not part of my research, so I okay. can't answer But that goes question. towards the assimilation but issue, I, right? I, I that's that's that, why I brought it up. Because in I, terms I, I of believe, the assimilation issue... I, I believe the, that yeah. many, many people of different religions when they come to extreme views and when they are very, very conservative, they will be anti-gay. They will be anti-homosexuality. Um, in this country, in Britain, up until the 60s, uh, homosexuality was an offense, criminal offense. Mm -hmm. right. um, so 
homosexuality went a, a long way for us to persuade us that they are equal and they deserve equality and egalitarianism. Right. Um, and you'll still find in this country people who belong to churches, uh, Christian churches, Muslim churches, Jewish churches, who are going to tell you that homosexuality is abominable and should be barred, should be criminalized, and people should sit in jail. Um, and you find but not the majorities. Jewish, you won't find the majority of Christians or Jews think it should be a jailable offense. It's just not a fact. You'll you, you find Jews and Christians that are going to tell you that homosexuality is against God. Yeah, but that's not a jailable offense. That's a significant difference. That's a public policy position. And, and these people should pay the price. And what, who, how they're going to pay the price, whether in this world or in the other world, that's a, a major concern for them, whatever. But for me, the starting point is that Sigmund don't accept it. I believe in live and let live. They don't right. do any harm to others. Of course. Why should go after them? So it's not a matter that is constrained only to Islam. It is something that is ingrained in very deep-seated conservative views of all religions, of all cultures. It's not just tagging Islam that they believe in that. Any extreme religion believe in that. Right. But there's a difference between believing that it's wrong and then believing and supporting a guy coming to your house with a gun to put you in jail for doing something that they believe is wrong, right? So that's that's what I'm getting to in terms of the assimilation aspects. Like, how do you assimilate? How do you assimilate people that are, that and, and Europe has failed to do it so far to to stop these sorts of parallel societies in a sense? Like, what is it? Just a question of of not education. Has Europe failed in educating? Is that is that is that is that your is that your thesis? Is just it's not enough money has been spent on education, uh, and that's why we have failed to make inroads with not only immigrant education, communities. Not only education, okay. everything, infrastructure, um, you know, life, housing, uh, being part of of, of the market, um, not to be the first to the last to enter and the first to leave. Um, lack of discrimination, equality, all these things, they are the bridges for egalitarianism in society. And this is going to gain your respect. Otherwise, they'll, they'll be alienated from you. And I said, it's something that we all have to invest more. Mm-hmm. We are, we, the majority, and I'm speaking the majority as if I'm in the majority. I'm a Jew in Britain, I'm not a majority. Uh, but the majority, those people who believe that they are the majority, those in the establishment, they have to be the kind people because they have it. Right, right. And they can course. afford it. They should give it to the others. And then if they invest, they're going to yield results. Positivity yields positivity. Yeah. But if you give them nothing, then of course there's going to be hostility. And they would continue to believe in whatever they come from, that they continue to believe. But if you don't want to be them to feel fully integrated, invest in their mm-hmm. full integration. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Not only education, everything. Everything, all aspects of society. That's the issue that I have with the Israeli-Palestinians. That is a lack of investment in them. If there will be more investment in them, then there's no fears of future colony. They will be fully integrated in society. Yeah, and I think I think it's a it's a legitimate point of view. Um, first of all, being kind to everybody, no matter what their their religion or background is, of course. Um, and of course, there are wonderful people 
of all cultures and all religions. This goes without saying. I think any any reasonable person has to acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, there are, I mean, you know, I, I obviously my my mother's side of the family come from a uh, you know Muslim country and have lived there probably for about a thousand years or so. And there was a reason why people that Jew, who are Jewish lived in in certain parts of the Muslim world was because at one point in history. Uh, Muslims were much more tolerant towards Jews than Christians were. And that's a fact as well. Thousands so of yeah. it's, it's nothing inherent. I, so I, yeah, so I do agree. There's nothing inherent that can't be inherent in Islam or any other culture um, that can't be modernized that where, where the majority of the people can, can still obviously maintain their Christianity, their faith in, in, in Christianity, maintain their faith in Judaism, maintain their faith in Islam, but still also respect constitutional rights and, and, and the rights, the natural rights that we have deemed are natural. Of course, I, I'll never argue that. The question is, if how do we get, because yeah, I'll just give you a quick, quick antidote and then we, we can move on from this, but my mother's from Iran, right? So when she was living there in, uh, you know, when she was born there in the 60s, you know, Iran was becoming a very westernized society. From that point onwards, the radical interpretations of Islam became manifest in much of the Muslim world. And that's, that was, that's been the problem that we've been dealing with, right? Is the radical interpretations of it. Uh, and, after, of course, the Islamic Revolution in Iran, Saudi Arabia turned up to level 10 because their leaders didn't want to get overthrown. They didn't want to see what happened to the Shah. Um, that, that brand of medieval radical Islam became the dominant ideology in many communities. And so the question is, in terms of assimilation, if we just and and I, I think this is this is your point and and it's it's a it's a reasonable point, um, which is if we just invested more in the communities in Europe who are of the Islamic persuasion, in all the resources that you mentioned, would they then change their views on some of these fundamental issues that the rest of us, on mass majority of us have have agreed are central to what it means to be british to be french to be a westerner right and 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 your and your position and correct me if i'm wrong is yes if we invest the full amount of resources then that will start to change as well they'll be worth more like everyone else for example it's worth a try okay ever done so let's try thank you so much for, for being with me. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you, Ashton. Good to see you. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcasts and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks again, and we will be back next week. Oh, man. And probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.